Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So we are now, what, in the middle of Lent, and mm-hmm. we have been spending this particular Lenten season journeying to the cross by debating and getting ourselves super confused <laughs> on atonement theories. So, so far, we have looked at the classic theories of Christus Victor and um, penal substitution, and I believe that today we are going to finally hit number three. Yes, we're going to be talking about the moral influence theory. Which, um, from my understanding, and help me, guys, I know there's much more to this, um, but the the main key to the moral influence theory is that Jesus' um, whole life was to teach us how to live, how to be good moral people. Now, I know there's more to it than that, but that's kind of what I... when I first hear about this, that's where I go. Yeah, and I think that's essentially correct. This has been ba- th- this theory has been around since Augustine, who is um, super old. I don't know when he was alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they just even it, but it's even more strongly identified with Peter Abelard, who was alive in the early one thousands. Um, so it. This theory basically says that we need knowledge of what is good and the strength. Uh, resolve to then do what is good and for that reason we were given Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. who was the epitome of good and that we need to follow his example and also do good even to the point of laying down our lives for others. Mm -hmm. Now in this theory's favor we could say there are certainly New Testament passages that make a connection between how Jesus lives and embodies love and how the followers of Jesus are supposed to live as well. Words even on Jesus' lips. Things Mm -hmm. like, by this will all people know you are my followers if you have loved one another. Love just as I have loved you. So Jesus sort of like Mm -hmm. sets into motion this this uh, paradigm of the way you're all seeing how I love you. You see how I just washed your feet. You guys get it. Okay. Now you go do this. That's what you're supposed to do. And this way of thinking about the atonement is basically, well, the cross is just that even bigger that Mm. why Jesus died or why the cross happened is Jesus shows us love to the total super duper Mm. extreme. And now we can see that and we'll be good little boys and girls because we'll be moved by such compassion to see that kind of love that we'll do that for other people. In many ways, I think this theory makes a lot of sense because the four Gospels, the majority of most of them, I'm not going to count Mark here, but like the other three, the majority of the written word on the Gospels about Jesus is him taking disciples and inviting them to follow him and Mm -hmm. doing essentially what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that way, aren't we also being invited along with the disciples to do what Jesus is doing in the world, which is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, um, you know, giving good news to the poor. Like, isn't that what Jesus is kind of telling us to do? I think it kind of does break down a little tiny bit, though, when Jesus then dies. Right. So, so like, on the one hand, we could say some helpful correctives to the other systems we've looked at. We said mm-hmm. that both penal substitution, and which is like Jesus pays our debt for us, and Christ is victor, Jesus fights the battle for us, that those have this sort of objective sense of, like, something objective happened in the universe when mm-hmm. Jesus dies, but that could potentially leave us, the sinners, like, unchanged. And moral influence is about, like, no, God's goal is to turn 
hard-hearted, you know, loveless me into someone who's capable of loving. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't know if you know that hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. It's one mm-hmm. of my favorite, favorite, favorite Lenten Holy Week hymns. It's Beautiful. like, I save it up for, like, uh, Good Friday, because I, I, I love the opening verse. Um, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love for me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. So the idea of, like, we're a bunch of hardened jerks, Jesus dies in such a way that moves us so that we become people capable of love. And I, and I, I, I get that. It's, it suggests that what Jesus did on the cross is meant to change and challenge and shape and make someone who's loving out of me. But Sarah points out, like, okay, why does that require death? Aren't there a bunch of other ways you could show love that don't involve dying? Yeah. And the whole idea of, of being good and, and trying to, to act in a way that God wants us to act, I mean, that's the whole Old Testament. That, right. That's the, that's the system of the law, and, and we tried that. And clearly God said, well, okay, this isn't quite working, um, because I can tell you to be good, and I can yell at you to be good, and I can you know command you to be good, all I want, but we can't be good on our own. That, I think, is a really important error or lacking or, 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 or fatal flaw maybe mm-hmm. if all we have is Jesus as the moral influence because it presumes uh, that we human beings have the ability by sheer willpower to make ourselves be loving just because we saw an example of it from mm-hmm. somebody else um, and maybe that's the, the critical issue um, one of the things that uh, at least in, in my church and Lutherans are hardwired to say is some form of uh, we're captive to sin and cannot free ourselves, uh, which is a way of saying like, even if I want to be good, I can't do that completely on my own. It's borrowing from Paul's language in Romans 7 about you know the good I want to do, I can't make myself do. Even on my good days, I really want to be a good little boy and I, I'm a stinker. I can't make myself be good all the time. Um, and that moral, if all we have to say about the cross is, see what Jesus did, copy what Jesus did, you've just got a 2,000-year-old Goofus and Gallant episode. You know, mm-hmm. be, be like Jesus, don't be like, you know, some selfish person or something. And if that's all we've got, that, then we're, it's really us saving ourselves by how well we copy what Jesus did. So, uh, in all fairness to the moral influence theologians, yeah. um, because there are moral influence the- theologians who hold this up as the one true example of this is what atonement theory should be. Mm-hmm. The other two are... Terrible and full <laughs> of really terrible flaws and moral influences where it's at. And these theologians, um, the two I know the most about is, which isn't a lot, is uh, John Hick and Michael Gulder, who lived and was prevalent in the 1970s. So recent, recent mm-hmm. people. Um, for them, Jesus is this great moral teacher who is on par with Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. um, Churchill, because uh, they're good British men, so Churchill. Um, but for them, we are to follow Jesus' example and live a life of love because that is what salvation is, is love. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in many ways, I think that it, even us who don't have just moral influence theology, but also the other two, we like them mm-hmm. mostly, mm-hmm. Um Love is a central part of Jesus' death and resurrection Mm -hmm. because Jesus isn't going to do it if there isn't love. And maybe that's it, that, like, if all you have is penal substitution, it sounds, it could sound like it's, that there's 
absolutely no love at all. It's just an accounting issue. That God mm-hmm, demands mm-hmm. payment. Somebody has to pay, and then Jesus grudgingly goes, well, I'll do it because I have to because I'm the obedient son of God. Um, and it could sound very cold and mechanistic. And Christus Victor could also sound just sort of like the, you know, Jesus goes and fights the battle because that's what a good, brave soldier does. Mm-hmm. And again, without any sense of love or, or care for the people he's dying for. Um, and one of the maybe helpful uh counterpoints that moral influence says is if, if somehow your your understanding of the cross doesn't involve love, you've missed something pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And that this does then mean if this is about God's love for us, somehow that has to also mean that it's meant to reverberate in our lives as love for God and for others. And I mean we've brought this this particular um atonement theory up with in talking about the other ones yeah. because we have said that you know you've got the battle mentality in Christus Victor, you you've got the you know the the pound of flesh you know and um, penal substitution but again if we're not doing something you know if, if that if what jesus did on the cross doesn't change something in us mm-hmm. then there's something missing okay and the new testament i think makes that very clear like it's not just okay you've been saved this is done you just keep on being what you know and right. doing what you do there should be some level of change in us and that's i think what moral influence helps us pull out of the of the cross yeah now that said, I guess if we had to, to push on that and say, does my salvation hang on how well I behave after I've heard the word about Jesus, uh, there maybe we've, we've headed yes. into the territory of, nope, that's, that's the wrong direction. Like, and maybe mm-hmm. the quintessential case study is there's this, I heard there's this thief on the cross who, in a total act of desperation, doesn't say, Jesus, I promise I'll be good, would you please take me to heaven? Just says, like, you know, out of utter desperation, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Mm-hmm. And Jesus wants the day you'll be with me in paradise. Doesn't have the asterisk of, pending in your last five minutes you show a little bit of moral improvement, or would you learn some manners mm-hmm. before you die, or would you please be kind to somebody before you shuffle off this mortal coil? It's a free gift. And mm. that, again, I think is at least one of those, whatever your understanding of moral influence theory is, has to make room for a hump. Jesus' grace, whatever the cross is, has to be so powerful, has to do something that even people who don't get their act together are still included, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the the, the person who, is, who comes to faith and says, I want to be a good person, then, you know, dies in a bus accident the next moment, yep, they're still included. Uh, this isn't just, if you've, if you've worked hard enough to show that you've uh, made some positive steps in your life, then you'll get parole. It's, it's not like that, I guess. So as as Lutherans, you and I, Steve, we both probably have this same kind of queasiness about being afraid of being too close to works righteousness, okay, right? Yeah. Where we mm-hmm. feel like we have to try to earn our salvation in any way, because that's like super not Lutheran. It makes my Lutheran spider sense tingle. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so I think moral influence has that danger to it mm-hmm. of, you know, we are following Jesus to be a, like, he's our good example, and we should tr- strive to be like Jesus in his perfection, even though we know we can't ever be perfect. But nonetheless, like, it, like, it has that danger to it of, is this works righteousness? Am right. I trying to earn my salvation? Mm-hmm. And I think it's here and elsewhere, but like it's for me, it's kind of Martin Luther's third use of the law. Okay. Where, um, which could be an entire series of the three uses of the law. Um, I'd but, have to be out on that one. <laughs> it, but the third use of the law is essentially the law is there. Not to for me to do to earn my salvation, but as a response to my salvation. Mm-hmm. That Jesus mm-hmm. has died for me, whatever atonement theory you want to talk about. Um, and as a response to this 
now new salvation that God has given me free of charge, I now try to follow the law. Like, mm-hmm. which is like the Ten Commandments, like all of Jesus is like, follow me, do what I do. Like that kind of things where God is asking you to do something. You're not doing it to earn your salvation, but you're doing it because God has saved you and you're trying to like have a good response back as a way to like, I guess, say thank you. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I often look at it as showing God gratitude. Like even, yeah. even in the offering, when I take up the offering every Sunday, almost every Sunday, I, you know, I, something in my prayer over that offering is not that we give this to, to pay God for what he's done for us, but just as a way of saying thank you for what he's... And, and so mm-hmm. for us to follow Jesus' as example is us, okay, God, you did this for me, you changed my life, now let me try to live in a way that, you know... Um, to say thank you and just to, to show you how much I, I appreciate you mm. canceling my debt, you winning the battle for me. Let me lob out what is potentially a hand grenade in this conversation. <laughs> oh, gosh. No. Forgive, forgive me here. But like, I, I, and may, maybe this is just one of those guardrails to say, here's a point where we want to avoid sloppy moral influence mm-hmm. theology or sloppy a meshing of uh, atonement theologies here. Um, uh, a lot of people saw, we probably talked before on this podcast about the Steven Spielberg movie uh, Saving Private Ryan, right? And the quintessential, there's the, the basic plot is Tom Hanks and characters are sent to go rescue Matt Damon's characters mm-hmm. on the front line so that he can go back home because he's the last one in his family and the, the idea is to save the family and he can go back home and be saved. Basically, they're going to save his life and in the process this the whole troop that's gone to rescue him gets killed. And as Tom Hanks' character is dying... He says to Matt Damon's character, knowing that like the that Tom Hanks is going to die and Matt Damon's going to get to go live and mm-hmm. be a grown up and live an old man. He says, "Dined him, earn this." And then it flashes to the present day where Matt Damon's character is now an old man. Mm. He's standing at the mm-hmm. cemeteries there on the beaches of Normandy with his wife and like grandkids in the background. He's clearly on a you know a vacation or a trip to Europe to go see. And he's standing there in this military cemetery breaking down weeping at the grave of mm-hmm. Tom Hanks's character, knowing that Tom Hanks's character died so that he could live and go back home. And he turns to his wife, remembering all this, and he turns to his wife and he says, tell me I'm a good man, tell me I've done enough, tell me I've been good enough. Mm. Because clearly mm-hmm. his whole life has now been lived with the fear of, I was given this amazing, I've given the sacrifice, someone sacrificed mm-hmm. their life for me, but he wasn't freed. He'd been living with guilt. I mean, like, I'm so happy he got to live and be a grandfather, but he didn't. He doesn't have a sense of being free. He has a sense of, like, did I do enough to pay this back? Yeah. And so my concern is, even if we want to say our lives are lived in response to what God's done for us, mm-hmm. how do we put up a guardrail to make sure it doesn't come off as, but you got to be looking over the back of your shoulder all your life long to make sure you did enough to earn it back or to pay God back or to be grateful enough for something like that. Unless we say, whatever the cross is, it's effective, even if I show no moral improvement at all, even if I'm mm-hmm. a thief on the cross who dies in my next breath and hasn't had a chance to help an old lady cross the street, um, that what happens at the cross is not Tom Hanks saying to the world, earn this, I've sacrificed my life for you, now earn it. Um, that somehow, that at least the, the way the New Testament uh, speaks about it, it doesn't say, you've mm-hmm. been given this gift, you better earn it or else. Mm-hmm. It says you've been given this free gift. And God runs the risk. You might abuse it or waste it or misunderstand it or mm. not earn it back or something. God runs that risk because God's willing to take that that hit. I think that's closer where the New Testament is. So then is it not necessarily us doing these good works ourselves, but the Holy Spirit working through us? Well, see, there I think you're back so. to Paul. And, and like we talked about last episode, Paul like leans hard on, 
were set right because Jesus' death is somehow our death and that the life we now live isn't just me, but it's somehow Christ living or present with me. The idea of being united to Christ is a really big idea mm -hmm. for Paul and for New Testament theology. And I think also a lot for the Eastern Church or the Orthodox Church, um, as well as a, a school of Finnish Lutherans, if you're interested in that conversation someday, <laughs> who think it's really, really important to say we're united to Christ so that any good that happens to me now, I don't have to go, God, look, I did this good stuff, but to say, God... You're even doing good stuff through me because Christ is living through mm -hmm. me now. Um, and then at the moment I look at myself saying, am I doing enough to respond to gratitude? I'm missing the point. I don't even look at myself anymore. I'm just, how can I help my neighbor? I'm not worried about who's keeping track anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not even worried about that. It's just Christ is doing this stuff through mm -hmm. me. That might be back on solid ground again. Yeah, because we have this tendency to, to, to treat this like karma. you know. And if we do enough right things, then we'll earn our salvation. Um, but that's not what God says. You know, as you point out, Steve, with a thief on the cross or the person that, you know, is on their death, you know, makes a deathbed confession. They don't have time to right. do anything to to earn their salvation. Not that it can be earned. Right, right. Um, but, you know, but we have this tendency to think in this karma mentality um, for whatever reason, maybe just because of society and... And the way we've been raised that, you know, well, I have to earn it, you know, that American mentality, of, I'm going to pull myself up by my right. bootstraps um, versus allowing somebody to pull me up. And I think maybe that's it. And maybe it's not even just a cultural thing. Maybe maybe it's a human thing that there's something mm -hmm. about us that deeply resists the idea that we are fundamentally dependent on grace rather than mm -hmm. that, well, okay, get to the part where I have to do my part, where I can show that I've earned it, or at least that I'm better than so-and-so, and because I'm better than them, you should let me in and not them. Mm -hmm. Like, that seems kind of like... Basically, yeah, that's kind of how we, how we get wired. Um, and then our culture has an awful lot to reinforce that, to be sure. Um, and maybe part of what, at its best, makes Christianity so scandalous is this notion that if you push real hard, it'll go, nope, thieves on the cross, also in. Um, and, that, and, and even that the New Testament can say things like, before the foundation of the world, God has arranged for Jesus' death on the cross mm -hmm. to be the... I mean, like, well, that suggests that, it, yeah, it's not dependent on what later things I do to show moral improvement. Um, I'm reminded in this conversation of um, a, a Bob Newhart skit from years and years ago um, on one of those TV comedy sketch shows um, where he's a therapist. Did you ever see this one? So in this, in this, oh, I think I know which one you're talking yeah. about. So there's this, there's this bit where he's a therapist and um, the new uh, patient comes in and he says, "Well, uh, I'll tell you. Here's my rates up front. It's uh, five dollars a minute for the first five minutes, and then after that, it's free." And the patient goes, "That sounds great, fantastic. What 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 happens if, if I go past five minutes?" And he goes, I, "I don't know. I've never had a session go longer than five minutes." And so uh, she oh, starts telling a problem. She <laughs> says, "Well, okay, my problem is." I'm, I'm deathly afraid of spiders, and it's paralyzing me. I can't, I can't <laughs> cope in life. I, I just have this terrible, terrible fear of spiders. And Bob Newhart thinks for a minute, and he goes, "Oh, I know what you should do. Stop it." And she goes, "What? Stop, stop it. it! Just stop being afraid of spiders. That's your problem. You're afraid of them. So here's my solution: is stop it." Um, and she, like, her response back is, "I can't. I don't know how not to be afraid of spiders. That's why I've come to you. I don't have the ability within me to not be afraid of spiders. That's my problem." Um, and I think in a way, like, moral influence theory runs up against the same mm -hmm. problem. That how do we, whatever we think happens at the cross that becomes this example for us, how do we say it's more than just God in Christ saying, stop being afraid of spiders? Would you just quit sinning? Would you quit, would you stop being unloving, be more loving? And we're like, the problem is, I don't know how, not only that I don't know how, even when I know what the loving thing is, there's this mm -hmm. part of me that's like, nope, I'm going to be mean. <laughs> um... And that something has to be at the heart of what happens at the cross, God's embrace of stinkers as stinkers, not mm -hmm. God's embrace of us conditional on us improving ourselves. Um, 
And there, I think, is where this, this moral influence theory, if it's, if, it, if it's by itself, falls apart. Yep. And I, I think it also falls apart, especially for Lutherans, because I can speak the best about Lutheran theology, um, is that we understand ourselves to be inherently sinful Mm -hmm. and that we can't ever stop being Mm -hmm. sinful. We can't ever reach the level of perfection that Jesus is because Jesus can be sinless because Jesus is God. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can't ever achieve that. And I'm not sure that there's room for that in moral influence. Now, I'll add as a wrinkle, here's a place where Lutheran theology needs to deal with something that we're not good at having answers for, is when we picture whatever the resurrection life or eternal life or the new creation looks like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it is our collective belief that we won't be sinners anymore because it won't be terribly heaven-like if I'm punching everybody in the side because I'm right. still... And one of the problems then is, huh, well, what happens between I die, still a dyed-in-the-wool bigoted, mean, crotchety old man, and then in heaven I'm all of a sudden this new person. I mean, like, somehow we have to be able to say, well, what's that about? Catholic theology in in medieval Christianity said, purgatory, that's where you go. You believed in Jesus, but you died a jerk. Go to purgatory, get Mm. your sins burned off, and then you can enter heaven when you're not a jerk anymore. And one of the trouble, and again, you can also go the route, as other branches of the Christian family tree go, of, well, in this life, it is possible to get yourself to perfection. That's what I like, yeah, classic Wesleyan tradition. Lutherans have kind of painted ourselves in the corner with, you're going to die a sinner, and you're going to wake up in glory, a new creation, and maybe when we all get to glory, we'll be looking around going, huh, I already know myself. <laughs> and I, I will say, for the Wesleyan theology, though, it's perfection and love. It's not being perfect. And, and so it, it's the idea that someday we will um, get to a point where we will never sin intentionally. But all, even Wesley believed that that is like a deathbed conversion right there <laughs> like it does not happen it's not going to happen to me now as a 35 year old and then i'm going to be perfect in love for the rest of my life it's going to happen to me when you know 50 years from now when i'm on my deathbed and that last you know my last breath the last five seconds <laughs> god's going to transform me my last words will be very sweet and kind <laughs> and i can join wesley saying best of all god is with us and then i'll go you know um so even for us who, who mm-hmm. you know um I don't want to say we work towards that, but we, we trust the Holy Spirit is working that in us. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it may maybe be a better way to say it. Um, we recognize that death's not going to happen likely until we are either at death or yeah. on death's door. And maybe what we could say is that the, the, the danger is to caricature ourselves and one another. And really what we mean to say is there should be guardrails. That on the Lutheran side, we shouldn't uh, just sort of say, I'm going to wallow in my sinfulness because there's no point in proving. And on the Wesleyan oh, side... Well, Luther <laughs> says to sin boldly, Steve. We'll have to have a whole separate conversation about what that means. Because it doesn't mean what people automatically assume it means. But it's more fun. It is, it is more fun when you... I'm guessing there's a longer time. phrase there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and the flip side is that, uh, okay, if there's some sense of ideally that we should be in- improving or increasing or striving in this life, that that not become a, a secret backdoor condition of, and if you don't show enough improvement, you're left mm-hmm. uh, out to out go into the outer darkness because you didn't show you know, significant enough improvement. There's gnashing of teeth. Right, yeah, there's, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth out in that outer darkness. Well, Wesley made it very clear... Um on his sermon on perfection about we that's something we can't do our mm-hmm, ourselves mm-hmm. you know he made that very clear so he's kind of lutheran in that sense you know yeah. we're, we're we're terrible horrible no good very bad people that 
without the Holy Spirit's help, we're never going to get to that point. Maybe. This is the point, and I think, I think at their best, a lot of the 16th century reformers had this in a way that we sometimes forget, that those writers had a way of saying... The goal, no matter what tradition you come out of, is always be looking to Christ. And if you start looking back at yourself, you will either mm-hmm. get so prideful and full, oh, I'm doing so good, look at how I'm improving, that you'll sort of like skew off the rails and that, I'm so great. On the other hand, if you look at yourself like, oh, I'm a wretched sinner, there's no hope for me, you skew off the mm-hmm. rails toward despair. And then at their best, those voices like Calvin, like uh, like Luther, like Wesley would say like, just keep your eyes on Jesus, and, and it's mm-hmm. always about Jesus is really good at embracing me while I'm a stinker, and Jesus is really good at transforming me and working through me. As long as my eyes are on him, um, that changes the way I see mm-hmm. this. So it's less about how am I progressing, or I'm free to wallow in sin. Uh, that is neither, both of those are wrong directed because they put me back at the center mm-hmm. again. I think Wesley hit on that with his questions for like the class meetings, and... Um where it asks, you know, one of the questions, where have you faced temptation this week? Which reminds us that we're constantly facing temptation. We're always, you know, we're, we're constantly sinners. Mm-hmm. But then the follow-up question is, where have you faced temptation and overcome it with the help of the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think he, he at least, and if we would have kept these questions going, which we've lost over the last, you know, 200 years, um, you know, it, it helps us to keep within those rails that you just mm-hmm, talked about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, at least in my experience in the Wesleyan movement, we haven't looked at those questions hard enough in recent years. So on its own, this idea of Jesus' death is about moral influence sounds like we're saying, at least among the three of us, if we're the arbiters of theology, <laughs> it seems like it, sta- it, it doesn't stand on its own terribly well. It no. makes a fine side dish. Yep. But it doesn't pair well with uh, self-righteousness <laughs> that it like the danger is treating it as uh, like a, a, an escape clause or fine print to the whatever else we mm-hmm. think about atonement that Jesus' death and on the cross actually means something it does something even if we show no improvement and yet part of what happens in Jesus is also that we're given this vision of what it is to be the what what humanity is supposed to look like all the way mm-hmm. down to living in love and laying our lives down in love all these kinds of things um, and that maybe part of the beauty is that in Jesus you get all those wedded together in one human life instead of having to sort out well, which which part is the objective atonement part and which part is the moral influence. Like, in Jesus you get all of it there together. Mm. Um, and we're both challenged to pattern our lives after him, but also to throw ourselves into his arms because this is beyond about what we do or accomplish. All right, well, we've got more things to say about atonement theories next time, but we're going to be delving into some particular biblical passages and maybe how they blur some of these lines for us next time, right? Yes. Sounds good. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody. See y'all. Bye.